Welcome back to 15 on the 15th, our bite-sized book club series featuring podcasts designed to help you digest short articles. No more than 15 minutes of reading required, we promise. This 15-minute recipe for success is a pinch of insightful reading, a dash of engaging discussion that blends together research and classroom practices. My name is Jenny Dees, and I am one of the coordinators of the ENL program at the University of Notre Dame. I'm joined today by our program coordinator, Claire Roach, and our program director, Katie LaShawn. Hi, friends. Hey, everyone. We just celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany, of course, the Feast of Three Kings, Los Tres Magos. And so today we're going to focus on the idea of gift, looking at our ELL families and the gifts that they bring to our schools. We've selected Breath Seth's article, A Guide for Engaging ELL Families, 20 Strategies for School Leaders, from a website called Colorine Colorado, which if you've never visited before, is one of the best resources for teachers of English learners. The article begins by asking us all to help rethink the conversation about our ELL families, from what they can learn from us at school to what we can learn from each other, and trying to move the conversation really from parent involvement to parent engagement. So ladies, before we begin actually um, unpacking a lot of these strategies, I just want to point out two ideas from the introduction to this article that really jumped out at me. The first is that one of our primary goals is developing trusting relationships with parents. How is it that we cultivate trust among parents from many different cultural backgrounds? And the second idea is this idea of the parents of our English language learners being a, quote, team waiting to be mobilized. I love that idea because it helps us as educators realize that there's a tremendous wealth um, within these families and that we need to figure out a way to connect to that wealth, to tap it. I think it's a great point, Claire. And I think what we're going to go ahead and do is in this two-part podcast, we're going to address kind of strategies one through 10 roughly this week. Um, and then we're happy to touch base with you again in February, uh, where we address kind of strategies 10 through 10 through 20 or 11 through 20, probably better math for me. Um, but Claire, I think you're absolutely right that it touches upon a couple of those really important themes. And so actually strategies one and two jumped out at me um, because it's really devoted to the idea of getting to know your English language learners and their families. So the article just begins by suggesting that you do a KWL chart um, with your faculty and staff. So one thing is that this article is somewhat geared towards leaders in the school. I completely argue that this works for every teacher Mm -hmm. in your building, um, for all of us who are educators. and that it's something that it's worth kind of coming back to. So that way the article is set up is that there's an idea, there's some strategies certainly, um, and then they follow up with a couple really good examples. Um, But looking at what we want to know about our families, part of developing trust is getting to really know who your families are. So asking questions, basic questions, right? But the country of origin, their home language, their occupations, previous school systems, um, even their situation. We often throw around the words refugee, migrant, immigrant, second generation, and all of those things mean 
incredibly different things. Um, so going deeper. So I liked the KWL chart. Um, a couple other things that I've seen, and I'd love to get your opinion, um, but I've certainly seen schools even devoting time in faculty meetings to simply looking at a map mm-hmm. or looking at YouTube mm-hmm. videos. I mean, it is amazing when we say that a child comes from Mexico, that can mean that can mean a child from a coastal town, um, a, certainly a child from the desert. Um, it, it can mean many different things. So even starting with a map, Googling some basic images. I mean, I think it's really surprising sometimes. We live in Indiana where we have multiple inches of snow right now. Um, but to realize that if a child comes from an absolutely beautiful town mm-hmm. um, on the ocean, how shocking this can be. Um, so I just wanted to throw that idea out there about basically just doing your homework. Yeah, and you know, when it comes to building trust with families, what I have found from experience is if I can mention one simple detail, maybe I know the state that the town is in, or maybe I know um, the capital of the country. Um, my favorite is whenever I tell someone from Honduras, oh, are you from Tegucigalpa? They look at me and they beam that I know the capital of their small central, and I can pronounce it, um, the capital of their small Central American country. Um, you know, another example of that is, oh, I've seen pictures of Baja California. Uh, what a beautiful place to be from. One simple statement like that dignifies the reality of that person. It makes them uh, helps them to understand that you are interested in where they're from, um, that you respect where they're from, that they're not invisible, right? That they have an experience that you know something about, even if it's just small. So I encourage you to find just one or two little hooks. And really, oftentimes, Google's the best place to go. Absolutely. So. We've seen some beautiful grants written um, by some friends of ours in which principals, teachers, school leaders, members of the parish, have actually written grants to go and visit where their families are from. The article talks about uh, a teacher visiting a rural village in Kenya. Um, we realize that that is, is a tall order, but there's something to be said about when you can see and sense and understand someone's situation. All right, this is Pope Francis, this is the idea of encounter, um, really kind of coming face to face with that. Haiti, I'm so glad you mentioned that word encounter because I do, I see it run through this entire article. And I think sometimes as teachers, we become overwhelmed with the standardized tests or the objectives or the things we need to do academically. We need to take that step back, those faculty meetings or our individual time, to not stop at the assumptions that we make about these children, but to really understand who they are so that we connect with them and their families. These parents are the primary educators of their children. We need to honor that and validate that and build those trusting relationships. And it starts by taking that time to really get to know these children. I think it's a perfect bridge to number two, Jenny, to integrating cultural traditions into our school. Uh, the article, certainly we could talk about culture nights and food and things like that, but this is even at a, at a logistical level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the example that came to my mind is I had a child in second grade from Turkey. Um, and within about a week of school, we realized that many of the items on the lunch menu that this child was receiving every day were A, not things he was used to, and not necessarily even things that were appropriate to consume um, in his cultural and religious tradition. So taking a look at 
maybe even some of the structures in place in school. So the article had a couple suggestions that I liked. In addition to looking at your school lunch menu, um, it was saying to look at significant cult- cultural celebrations to avoid scheduling conflicts. So if you have children that are coming from, Claire's nodding, go ahead, Claire. Well, I've got a great example of this, which is that at my own children's school, we um, last year scheduled accidentally a PTO meeting for Eid, so which is a Muslim holiday. And the PTO president looked around and said, gosh, we have a low turnout today. Well, nobody realized it, but we scheduled it on a day that there was no way that any of those Muslim families were going to participate. And oftentimes you, you make these mistakes. The key is to learn from them because they were good meaning. Um, you know, I, I, would, I'm, I realized throughout all of this, I'm going to keep coming back to um, the same piece of advice, which is start small. Um, and I want to give you two examples. One is... This year at the school that I teach at, Holy Cross, we made an effort to celebrate Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, um, which is a traditional holiday in Mexico. It is associated with Halloween. It is by no means um, exactly like Halloween. In fact, I suggest that everybody uh, watch the movie Coco if you want to learn a little bit more about the holiday. Anyway, um, we did some things school-wide, but also teachers decided that they were going to figure out small ways to celebrate this within their classroom. So our kindergarten teacher um, sent home a picture of a Katrina Calavera, one of the classic um, skeleton figurines. And she pulled me into her class the next day and said, Claire, I want you to take a look at these. And she laid all of these Katrinas out on the desk for me to see. And her aide actually is from Mexico. So the two of them said, okay, what do you notice? And I looked at them, and there were probably four or five. Most of these were colored like you would expect from a kindergarten. Kindergarten are lots of bright colors, super cute. But four or five of these calaveras were take your breath away. I mean, you could tell that this child showed this particular homework assignment to his or her parent, and his or her parent instantaneously knew what this image symbolized, and I would argue, making an inference, um, showed a lot of pride in this particular tradition. And so when it came time to doing something simple like decorating the Katrina, they went all out. Um, And so... Obviously, these teachers were really tickled because they recognized that by doing a simple assignment, like sending home a Katrina, right, those families for whom that had a special significance were able to make real connections with their kids about it and show pride in their own cultural tradition um, and heritage. So, you know, that was a coloring sheet. It doesn't have to be um, anything super, super extensive. But I also think to the point, too, of knowing where to even start is sometimes lost on our teachers um, yeah. just because we some, we just don't simply know. And so one thing that the article suggested that I really liked was inviting a mother, um, in this case it was a mother, to a faculty meeting. So kind of a mom in the community that you feel like can answer some of these questions and just having the time for faculty to ask some of these questions that they have uh, to share their own understandings or misunderstandings. And so just having some more time and transparency. Um, So kind of from what you've both said, I'm hearing Jenny say, we need to carve out more time 
to get to know these families is an important part of what we do. It's not just all about our curriculum. It's, in turn, knowing our families to do exactly what you just said, Claire, um, to reach out to them in really meaningful ways and, and in ways in which they can bring their gifts and mm-hmm. to share their gifts. And, you know, I would, I would just add that, I mean, it's part of what I think we in the Catholic school community um, do really well which is create educational spaces where cultures and faith traditions can be celebrated, not erased. Um, so I challenge everybody to, to remind yourself of that. And I think part of beginning that celebration is being aware of our cultural lens. I thought number three was really powerful for me. I think the things in it were important and we'll get to that, but the reflection that it included about imagining that you were dropping your child off at a school where no one spoke the language that you sp- that you speak at home and nothing was written on the walls in your home language and just going through that reflection of having no connection but taking your most precious possession your child and entrusting it to these people for 8 hours a day that was really helpful to look to flip the situation and remove my cultural bias and to look at it a different way and then think how powerful it is for parents to walk into the building and see pictures of your very diverse school community, to see the map that your faculty made at the summer meeting where they plotted all the points where all their incoming students are coming from, to find things on the wall written in multiple languages, Mm -hmm. to understand how to get into the building when it's locked during a school day and you come. I mean, the story about the young child who waited outside in the cold because he was hard, or he came on a snow day when school was delayed, but conveying to parents all of those very seemingly simple procedures, what you do on a snow day, what you eat in the lunchroom, how you turn in homework, what this planner thing is, what you're supposed to do with this folder, and not just presenting it in a packet that's 50 pages thick in a language that you don't know, (laughs) to say, okay, familiarize yourself with everything in this handbook, sign off and return (laughs) it to the office, but to make it personal, bring in those mothers, have madrinas you can call. So I thought number three offered some really great small practical tips for creating a welcoming environment for families. Well, I think in it really highlighted some of the things I think we take for granted. Again, what do you do on weather days, especially in Indiana, if this is something that is um, entirely new? So completely sidetrack here. Um, But we were playing yesterday uh, in the snow outside um, close to campus here. And um, a sister walks up, and she had clearly walked herself to the grocery store. Um, and I just happened to see under her big coat, um, she introduced herself. She was Sister Juliet, and she said, I've never seen snow like this. She said, I'm from Uganda. She said, can you take a picture? I want to send it back to everyone. Um, and then she's looking up at the sleds. Um, I'm obviously not going. I'm almost eight months pregnant, but I'm, I'm watching. We took her sledding yesterday um, for the very first time. But um, my point is, there's a lot of things that we kind of take for granted. So I thought three was good for the routine piece, certainly, um, that it talked about. It gave you good ideas. But I like that it talked about almost a welcome kit idea. And so maybe putting simple icons on a lot of these things, numbering steps that are easy. Um, They said having a couple welcome centers in the school, maybe based on language. But how can you take and really make sure that parents understand what the day-to-day 
of their child's life looks like? And then in turn, how can that be a bridge to, to getting them more involved and more comfortable in school? So the phrase that jumped out at me related to tip number three was the idea of really making sure that your ELLs are a visible population in your school, right? It's so easy to ignore students and families that sometimes are relatively silent. Um, so yeah, being very explicit, intentional about trying to think through their needs um, and also just dignifying their experience. Exactly. And obviously this welcome starts with the enrollment process, whether we like it or not, that's where we encounter these families. And so seven, eight, and nine speak kind of to that process and little things you can do throughout that process, materials that can be included, um, just things that we may overlook or take for granted are outlined in number seven. And then number eight suggests obviously keeping that enrollment process open throughout the year and welcoming families when they come to you and not just seeing things as a closed window. To, so keeping those doors open and welcoming those families. And then number nine suggested providing opportunities for parents to learn more about <clears throat> important topics and skills. And this reminded me of an outreach we used to do years ago at a local school here. Um, we turned the HASA meetings, the Home and School Association meetings, which were drawing about four to six people into a family night. And so once a month, we would have dinner. Dinner was provided. Families were welcome. Children were welcome. After dinner, the kids went upstairs, and little children played in some classrooms, and older children were given assistance with homework. And then workshops were provided for parents um, on various topics. Some of them were run by teachers and focused on academics. Some of them were um, run by community resources, such as members of the public library coming in to getting people signed up for library cards. But maybe consider how you schedule events like home and school and PTO and how you can make that more family friendly and then also hit some broader topics that might be really helpful. You know, when it comes to enrollment, too, I just want to um, remind our listeners that there's obviously a lot of culture that we see and is visible, but there's also a lot of culture, worldview that is invisible. Um, and sometimes you rub up against this, especially during enrollment. So we in the United States tend to be a very um, contractual, very legal um, society. We like rules because rules are clear and um, they're fair for everyone. There are also cultures around the world that um, are more, I would say, flexibility-based. So um, they might issue contracts because contracts don't give you the wiggle room to make sure that everybody's needs are, bet, are met um, and that a lot of the agreements happen based on relationships and trust. So, um, so sometimes we look at parents and we think they just don't get the rules. Um, and really there's a lot of cultural uh, worldview happening under the surface that we might not see. So um, when it comes to documents and timing. I was gonna say, Claire, I think trust, there's a lot of trust to come in and fill out paperwork in which mm -hmm. you are listing your address, your phone number, your email, every, I mean, there's a lot of trust inherent in that. And so sometimes I think we just need to take a step back and ask ourselves, where would the hesitancy be in this situation for someone who is um, 
you know, potentially not wanting to share that information and helping them to understand kind of what their legal obligations are. And, and more importantly, what is what is the minimum we need to do to be able to ensure that this child can enroll in our school? And knowing the difference between what parents are required to give and what children. So it opens a whole, it's a whole nother topic um, that probably none of us are terrible experts on. Um, but um, something to think about for sure. So trust there for sh- is a part of that process. We just want to conclude by thanking you for joining us today. Please tune in in February where we unpack the last part of this article. Um, in the meantime, we really encourage you to check out the article itself. As we said, it includes really stellar concrete ideas, almost a checklist format of things that you can begin doing in your school. Some things are certainly set up for you to try again tomorrow or to try tomorrow. Some things are next month. Some things are yearly goals. Um, But it's really a well-written piece. Um, And we're looking forward to unpacking this in February. As always, if you're passionate about ensuring that culturally and linguistically diverse children and their families are thriving in our Catholic schools, we invite you to learn more about our English as a New Language program at ENL nd.edu. Please note that our applications to become an ENL Hernandez Fellow are closing on March 31st. We certainly want to hear from you. As always, if you enjoyed this month's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and to share it with a friend. We'd love to hear your feedback, um, so leave us a review on iTunes and let us know what topics you'd like for us to cover in the future. Many blessings on your important work. Thank you.